there, and welcome to the Dog Liaison Podcast. I'm your host, Jenna. In this episode, we'll be talking about how much do genetics affect a dog's behavior? Another way of thinking of this is how much of your dog's anxiety is your fault? And, you know, I do want to kind of warm this up by saying this conversation, this episode isn't just for you, the guardian of an anxious dog. This episode is actually methodically placed to be one that you can share with family and friends who maybe are open to being a little bit more educated about your dog's anxiety. Perhaps your friends and your family currently think that you are causing your dog's anxiety. The methods that you're using, that the way that you are giving your dog treats or, you know, the way you're recovering their separation anxiety, the method that you're using is actually making your dog anxious. And, you know, to be honest, this is a topic that I can get pretty passionate about, but I really wanted the root of this conversation to be education. I think there's a lot of room for education here because what, the, what it really comes down to is the nature versus nurture debate. Okay, so we're, that's one of the things we're going to be tapping into. But I want to open it up by saying that there is a difference. There is a very, very, very big difference between a guardian who knows their dog can get reactive and deliberately puts them in a situation where they will get anxious, where they will get reactive, where they will have a panic attack, and then lets that happen, versus a guardian who does everything in their power to avoid the panic attack, and it still occurs. Those are two very, very, very big differences. One is rooted in a disorder that has a lot of genetic basis. And one is like enabling. One is like asking the dog, here, experience this panic attack. Here we go. Well, those are two very different things. But let's rewind a little bit. I think of the root of us wanting to blame guardians are the, the reason we want to say that guardians are causing the dog to be anxious because that's a simple answer. That seems so simple. It's just like, if you just remove the guardian out of the equation, you just completely eliminate them from the sequence, the dog will no longer have anxiety. The dog will be perfectly perfect. That the only reason the dog has any problems is because the guardian is there. That seems like such a simple answer. You just remove this one equation and, and like a magical wand, it's all better. But like most things in life, that's an oversimplification. It's an oversimplification that is proliferated by misinformed quote unquote dog experts on TikTok and TV for that matter, who want to say that your energy, your actions, how you're holding your shoulders that's all causing your dog to be anxious. Those are just such simple answers to a very complex problem. And believe me, I wish it was that simple. I wish, please, I wish I could just tell all my clients, do me a favor, relax your shoulders and everything will be okay. And your dog will be magically better. I really wish it was as simple as that, but it's not, <laughs> of course not. It's a very, complex conversation. And in fact, when you remove the guardian from the equation, the anxiety is still there. 
Now, sometimes that anxiety is going to appear differently. The disorder will take on different symptoms as a result of the guardian not being near. But that doesn't mean that the anxiety isn't there. And then, of course, in the other cases, you remove the guardian and the symptoms are exactly the same. So it made no difference whatsoever. Because at the root of it, there's a mental health problem. So let's talk about nature versus nurture. For one thing, the whole versus premise is an automatic misleading effect. It's not nature versus nurture. It's nature and nurture. We know this. This is not news. It's something we often forget. We like to put the two up against each other and say battle one another. But of course, it's a both. It's an and. And the truth of the matter is that nature is playing a very, very, very significant role in a dog's anxiety disorders. A very significant role. And there are three basic ways to look at the nature lens. Okay. Actually, there, I mean, there are more, but I've simplified it and put it through three. The first is a little thing called ethology. And ethology is the study of dog behavior, how dogs work. But for the purpose of this episode, I want you to think of ethology as the history of dogs. It's the 15,000 years before today that have all cultivated into the little animal you have beside you at home. It's those 15,000 years that happened before today, before your dog was even born. And those 15,000 years, they matter, my friend. They, they matter. For example, most of those, many of those, we were domesticating dogs. We were asking them to become reliant on us. We told them we would provide food, we would provide shelter, we would provide sanctuary, we would provide water, we would provide a place to sleep at night where they were not in danger. We told them we would provide all those things for them, and by no one's surprise, they became reliant on us. Go figure that they would start to bond to us and want more attachment to us. Go figure that they wouldn't want to be separated from those who provide resources. There has been an evolution that has taken place from a resource perspective and from a relationship perspective. We have literally evolved with this species to build a relationship with them that is unparalleled to anything other than our own species. We have evolved to build an unspoken communication with them. They understand us, we understand them intuitively. All of this is happening genetically and through our DNA. It's, it's, It's a crazy phenomenon if you ask me, like it's really impressive that not only have we been able to do this with our own species, but then through such a magical, beautiful process, We have been able to actually do this same attachment, the same relationship fostering, the same communication skills with another species, the domesticated dog. It's flipping beautiful, if you ask me. It's magical and it works both ways. We get a serotonin kick from them, they get a serotonin kick from us. 
of course they are attached to us. Of course we are attached to them. Of course. And how dare someone insinuate that that attachment is unhealthy? How dare someone insinuate that this evolution is one individual's fault? The individual who happens to live with a dog with separation anxiety. Let us not insinuate that a guardian of a dog who has any separation-related problems, any hyper-attachment problems, is guilty for thousands of years of domestication. That's not fair. And now this conversation has revolved around mostly separation anxiety, but let's talk about the other anxiety disorders, the phobias. So we've taken this animal, this dog, who was not supposed to live in cities. To be quite frank, he has incredible hearing, but ironically, it was meant to be in quiet places. His hearing, the reason it's so good, is because it was supposed to span miles of quiet area. It wasn't actually supposed to be put in an environment where there are honking and, you know, fireworks and banging construction and, you know, kids screaming outside. That's not what that hearing was meant to be. And so we've asked these dogs who have these amazing hearing sounds, amazing ability to smell, and we've put them in the middle of a city. And then we just can't fathom why all of a sudden they would have noise sensitivity. It's just crazy. It's beyond me that they would be afraid of big, scary noises. It just blows my mind. No, 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 no. It makes sense that they would be phobic of noises. Of course it does. We've put them in an environment that was not conducive for their hearing. Now, let's think about fear of people or fear of other dogs. This comes down to ethology as well, my friends. Because you might be thinking, well, my cousin's dog gets scared of people. And that has nothing to do with ethology. It has everything to do with ethology. And you might be thinking, but Jenna, you just got done with a whole rant of how you know, dogs are domesticated to live with us and how they're supposed to have this special bond with humans. So why then would it mean that they are afraid of me when I come over to visit my friend's house? Well, have you considered that the breed that is barking at you was designed to have stranger danger? How many breeds? And I'm not just talking about the Mastiffs. I'm not just talking about the Great Danes. There's plenty of small breeds as well that were meant to guard. How many breeds were designed to guard a place and make sure that either other dogs or other animals or other people do not come wandering on to that territory? The truth of the matter is most breeds were designed to guard something. Maybe not an actual like fence or property. Maybe not necessarily, you know, uh, another animal. Like they weren't meant to guard a herd. But like if you look at Dalmatians, which my dog Max is a Dalmatian, they were designed to guard horse carriages. So of course, it makes sense that a dog who is designed to guard would guard things. So of course, your dog who is afraid of people, who gets anxious when strangers come waltzing into their property, of course that dog is going to have anxiety around that. 
They were designed to not trust strangers that they don't know. They were designed to build really strong relationships with those whom they do know. But anyone else who is outside of that network, they're like, I don't know about you. They're dogs that are designed to not like other dogs. You know, we got dogs that were designed to be lap warmers. And then we wonder why they want to crawl on our lap every night. And that's really the root of this, is if if you've got a dog at home, you're like, I must be the reason why my dog is anxious. Or if you're a family member and you're like, you know, it must be that the guardian is, is at fault for their dogs being guardians. The very first thing you need to consider is what is that breed's job? And are they actually doing that job? Because I guarantee you, if you go down a little bit of a history lesson and you learn what the ethology of that breed is, what motor patterns they come equipped with, you will suddenly realize, oh, he's doing his job. He's just not in a place where that job is conducive. Oh, he's not wrong. He's just not put in a context where displaying that behavior makes sense. So is that your friend's fault? Is that your fault? No, but it requires understanding. It requires compassion. So that's ethology. This episode is brought to you by my signature coaching program, the Recovering Rover Program for Anxious Dogs. One dog, one million phobias. Reactivity, noise sensitivity, separation anxiety, generalized anxiety, and the list goes on and on. If your dog has multiple anxiety-related disorders, then you know the awful stress of feeling trapped in your own home. Having a dog with anxiety does not mean sacrificing your own mental health. The RRP is the most comprehensive program that coaches guardians on how to treat their dog's anxiety. This is a six-month group coaching program dedicated to making you an expert in desensitizing your dog's triggers and making your dog feel more calm and comfortable in the world. For all the info on the Recovering Rover program and to see whether you and your dog are a good fit, Go to getacondog.com backslash RRP to learn more. And now back to the episode. The second component of nature is epigenetics. And epigenetics is this really vast phenomenon. You know, we, we don't have time to get into all of it because it's, it's very vast. But for the sake of this conversation, I really want to point out that like, it doesn't take much to change a dog's DNA or any individual's DNA for that matter. Because our bodies want to survive. Our bodies are not just meant for us to live, but it's meant for our spawn to live as well. So our bodies are going to learn very quickly. What do we need to do to survive in this environment? And then let me make sure that 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 system gets put into my DNA and then gets passed down to my babies. That's what our bodies want to do. And so this is the story I use. I know it's an extreme story. I know it's it's a little extraordinary. I get that, but it makes the picture and that's why I go with it. But imagine that you and your dog are walking into a forest. It's just you and your dog and you're skipping along and you're enjoying your little wood hunt. And then all of a sudden big giant bear comes out of the woodwork and he starts attacking you. And by some grace, by some miracle, you and your dog make it that out alive. You and your dog are able to get out of the forest, get away from the bear and you race home and you sit there. You're like, holy moly, I've survived. 
well, that has been such a traumatic event that your DNA is going to start to think, wow, are we going to have to fight off bears again in the future? <laughs> like, is this something we need to get better at overcoming in the future? And my God, are our babies going to have to overcome bears in the forest in the future? Do they need to get better at it? And if your DNA thinks, yeah, we should become really efficient at fighting bears, then it's going to re-encrypt your DNA. Or at the very least, your dog's DNA could change. And then that dog has babies. And now two to 15 new puppies all have this fear of bears. That is one of the powers of epigenetics. And this is how a rational fear, which goes against ethology, can still be genetic-based. If your golden retriever has a negative experience with a dog and the golden retriever's DNA thinks, oh my God, are we going to have to get better at fighting off other dogs? Then it's going to basically redesign itself to become more adaptive to warning off other dogs and fighting other dogs and saying dogs are a threat. And then that little golden retriever has nine more puppies. And those nine puppies all think on a DNA level that other dogs are bad, must be warning off other dogs. And then those nine puppies all have puppies. And then those 81 puppies all have a fear of other dogs. This is how you start getting dogs that you may have Googled at home. You're like, okay, I looked up this dog and he doesn't supposed to guard anything. And what Jenna said all about ethology doesn't really make sense, blah, 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 blah. She doesn't know anything. This is how dogs that really fundamentally should like not have anxiety, should not have phobias, you know, from a fundamental level should like people, but don't like people. This is how this can still happen on a DNA level. It's a defect. Yes, but it's not a defect that is your dog's fault or even your fault. It's a defect that, you know, grandma, grandpa, great grandpa, great, great, great grandpa. It's a defect way down a couple generations. They screwed up for you. Thank you, great, 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 great grandpa. Thank you for that. So happy with it. That's epigenetics. It sucks. But it can also be really beneficial. Like epigenetics can be really cool too. It can come in handy. Because like I said, our bodies like to adapt, you know, I don't want to give epigenetics a bad name. It can come in handy. Step one and step two, ethology and epigenetics, those all happened before your pup was even conceived. Like it was predetermined at least before your puppy was conceived, if not thousands of years before then. But then this next step three actually happens from the moment they're born to about 16 weeks. This magical thing happens. Oh, it's so beautiful. It happens very organically. Now we can we can do little things to maneuver it, but it happens very organically. This little puppy comes out into the world and he's like, What is this thing that I see? Let me study it. Let me learn about it. And they're like little sponges. They just absorb, absorb, absorb. And we know within these 16 weeks, and really it's 12 to 16. We know that there's a lot of critical learning that happens in this time, right? It's the same for like humans. The vast majority of a human's personality is determined by the time they're seven years old. Same for dogs. By the time they're 16 weeks old, the vast majority of the personality is determined. And they're learning about it. And every little event 
is not actually little. Every little event is major. And it has the opportunity for incredible, beautiful growth. It has the opportunity to really convince a dog that people are good, other dogs are good, sounds are good, textures are good, food is good, water is good. It has the opportunity to really stack our deck in our favor. Ironically, though, most people don't appreciate the significance of those 16 weeks. And as a result, we keep our dog in a cocoon up in our middle of our apartment, afraid of parvo. We take our little puppy home at eight weeks, which, by the way, half of that is already gone. So half of our little socialization period is already out the window. We take a little puppy home at eight weeks and then we go, oh, my God, we might get parvo. We better lock him away for another eight weeks. And that's a whole other conversation. But what we really have to appreciate is that those 16 weeks are critical and they're often underutilized. Now, from a guardian's perspective, first and foremost, this is not your fault because you may not even even have gotten your dog when he was 16 weeks or under. Like, <laughs> I mean, you may have gotten your dog when he was far, far, far older than that. So there's that, right? You weren't even around. You weren't even a speck in his eye around that time. But even if you did get your puppy at a young age, you probably got your puppy about seven, eight weeks, right? So already half of that socialization period is not even under your control. So here we are blaming guardians for our dog's anxiety when approximately 90 to 97% of the dog's identity his personality, his temperament, is already determined by the time he's 16 weeks old. Vast majority of it is DNA, genetics, and a vast majority of it is critical learning that happened in the first 16 weeks. And here we are with the audacity to say that a guardian giving his dog a treat is causing anxiety. That really makes me mad because it's short-sighted. You're seeing one little moment and completely ignoring every important moment that happened before it, all the way up to thousands of years before it. It's so short-sighted. Now, one of the takeaways you could have with this, after we talk about nature, is that nurture then has nothing to do with it. <laughs> that nature is so substantial that nurture is completely irrelevant and we're all screwed we all have anxious dogs it is what it is let's give up but like i said at the beginning of this episode it's not an or debate it's an and nurture plays a role right and like nurture requires compassion but it also requires strategy nurture requires not just like do you love your dog but it requires do you have the awareness to make your dog actually feel better? Do you have the education to be able to do that? I think it'd be really easy to say, well, if 90 to 95% of the dog's personality and temperament is determined by the time they are 16 weeks old, then certainly if I have a two-year-old dog, that means, you know, there's no way for me to ever recover my dog's anxiety and treat it and help him. He's just always going to live in phobia and in fear. And it is just what it is. He's always going to be over aroused. He's always going to see a trigger and run. It just is what it is. That's equally so short-sighted, my friend. It's discounting the power of nurture. So you need to be a little bit more optimistic than that, but you also need to have the strategy to, to play with it, right? It's an and situation. Behavioral training does work. 
every dog has the opportunity to learn. Learning is a powerful tool and every dog at every age in every day of their life has the ability to learn. And part of your responsibility of providing nurture to your animal is by ensuring that your dog has the opportunity to learn every day. Part of nurture requires that you are giving your dog the opportunity to learn and have a new perception on life, to change his perception of the triggers, to change his perception of his reality, to have better behaviors that make him feel more comfortable and more confident in the world as he navigates it. And yes, nature is, has stacked the deck against you. Nature has really screwed you over a little bit. Let's be honest. Let's call it what it is. Anxiety is often rooted in at least a traumatic event that you weren't even you know, privy to. Or if not that, then it was rooted in genetics. Is the DAC stuck against you? Absolutely. Does that mean you should give up? No. You owe it to your animal to play on his nurture. You owe it to your dog to remember that this is a nature and nurture conversation. And if you are a family or friend of a guardian, I want you to appreciate that the guardian's deck is stacked against them. And they're going to need your help. They're going to need your help to understand that they're really trying to play on this nurture field here. They are. It's not like they're trying to be naive. It's not like they're trying to be idiots. And they're just like, well, let's just let our dog live anxiety. They're trying to push against nature. They are. So give them a little grace. Give them a little compassion. And you can do this if you feel so inclined by continuing to get educated in the methods that they're using. If you're not interested in being educated in their methods, that's on you, but don't judge them. That's number one. If like, if you really don't want to learn the process of desensitization and crowd conditioning and understanding, changing the perception of the threat and all that, you don't want to learn all that, that's cool. You don't have to, but you certainly don't need to be judging anybody. If you are interested in learning, then the process that these guardians are working through is something called desensitization and counterconditioning. These are science-backed methods. These are rooted in behavioral learning. They're rooted in classical and operant conditioning. They're rooted in science and ethology and behavior analysis. There's reason behind what they're doing. They're not just like throwing treats at the sky and seeing what sticks. There's a method. If you're a guardian right now, and you do feel like you're just throwing treats at the air, and they're like, let's just see what sticks. Then, my friend, that tells you you need a process. That tells you that you're not doing the steps the way they're meant to be used, and there's room for education. This goes back to what I was talking about a couple episodes ago, which is like, at the root of your unknowing should be the process is the solution, not a trainer. The trainer doesn't have all the answers. You have the answers. The process is going to give you the tools to bring those answers out. Systematic. I hope this episode, while passionate, is also very educational. I hope that it gives you a new perspective on what your dog is actually experiencing and 
how they came to experience it that way. And let's wrap up. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Dog Liaison Podcast. Support for this episode came from the Recovering River Program. Go to getacomdog.com to learn how you can treat your dog's anxiety. And you can support this podcast by leaving a review and sharing. I appreciate your continued support, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.